Hello and welcome to a new episode of Conversations on Consent. I'm your host, Elisa Yanacone, and this is my co-host, Nico Drimaka. Hello, I'm happy to be here. Happy to have you. <laughs> and today we have a wonderful guest. This is a woman that's not just a speaker and survivor of sexual violence, but someone that's actually devoted her career to making change in the world of sexual violence so that we don't have to put up with it anymore. So welcome Thordis Elba. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, the pleasure and honor is mine. Now, some of our listeners might find parts of our conversation triggering. If you need support, please visit the resources on our website. And before we dive into our discussion, let's listen to some of Thordis' highlights first. The first thing that happens when we dehumanize people is we remove their right to consent. Of course, when you live with someone and you've been in a relationship for long, like some things, of course, sort of fall into their place and become habits and you don't have to inquire as frequently about consent for certain things, such as, you know, whether or not your partner would like a cup of tea, <laughs> you just assume that they want one and you offer it, but of course you respect if they don't want it. However, there are certain areas where consent should always be um, sought and respected, and sex is one of those areas for sure. We should always be focusing on the person who's instigating the, the activity to be 100% sure that there's consent along the way in every step of that journey. So I think that we have the basic groundwork. Um, then we just need to figure out ways to um, universalize, if you will, the concepts. There are, of course, instances where boundaries are crossed and it's not um, purposeful. And I think that happens to all of us, not necessarily in sexual situations, but I don't think we can go through life without violating consent or boundaries at some point. It's part of the human journey. Uh, and it means that we need to be always mindful uh, and never think that we know once and for all where, where all boundaries lie. So I was wondering if to begin with, you could just tell us, why do you think it's necessary to have conversations on consent? Because I can think of few topics that are more pressing and global and intricately tied to our humanity. And what does uh, consent mean for you? Well, that is such a massive question, but a great one to dive into. Um, I think that for me, consent is a foundation for all human communication. And I think that we tend to, to talk about consent first and foremost um, in context to sex and sexual relations. But for me, it's just so much bigger than that. Consent is basically acknowledging another person's autonomy. Um, that they have a right to choose to engage in whatever it is, um, whatever the situation. And by removing someone's right to consent or not to something, we are denying them a very crucial part of their humanity. So the first thing that happens when we dehumanize people is we remove their right to consent and have that power and autonomy in their lives. So for me, it's a It's a very central concept to what it is to be a human being. 
Absolutely. And Thargis, what is it that brought you to the realm of consent and to devoting so much of yourself to this topic? Well, I think that I share that with many others who work in the realm of violence prevention, that I have been violated myself. I'm a survivor of sexual assault, and it's no secret that when I was 16, I was sexually assaulted by my then first boyfriend. Uh, and since then, we have um, come together to share our story in the hope that it would be a contribution towards this pressing global conversation about the necessity to always get consent in any human communication, but particularly in the more intimate kinds and insects. Um, I realize that the story that I share is, of course, unique to me in the sense that it's my lived experience. But at the same time, I'm also painfully aware of how common and widespread it is that people um, assume that there is consent where there is not. Um, and particularly this misconception or myth, if you will, that once you're in a relationship, consent is sort of um, embedded. Uh, and I think that we still have work to do on that front to uproot that misconception and create a consent culture worldwide. Past consent does not equal future consent. Being in a relationship doesn't mean there is any entitlement to another person's body. Thirdus is very brave to go public with her own personal story as an example to learn from, especially in the realm of relationships. As she says, there's a widespread misconception that the relationship itself gives permission to any kind of behavior by default. Once you say yes, you say yes to everything from then onwards. With conversations on consent, we want to bust that myth. Consent is not a blanket statement, but an ever-growing conversation, especially in relationships and marriages as well. Yeah, you're touching already on, on all those levels. Uh, like consent means something for each individual. It means something as soon as we interact with just one other person. And then there's this extension society. Um, maybe to start first with, with ourselves. And you mentioned also that um, we all have assumptions and we might need to uh, switch them off or um, uh, challenge them. How would you say can everyone personally practice consent? Oh, wow. Um, there are so many areas in life where we can do that. Um, I like to take my motherhood as an example. Um, my children are now three. I have twins. It's um, a lot. <laughs> uh, and they're at a stage where um, they love to, to ask me to, to chase after them and like tickle them and it's fun and it builds trust and it's physical and it's a lot of laughter. Um, but it's also, I think, just an excellent opportunity to um, really explore boundaries and give a, a strong message to my children about what is okay and what is not. Because in all physical play, there is usually a point in time where it becomes too much or too intense. Um, and in such instances, for there to be an opportunity to draw a boundary and to get that boundary respected by whomever it is that you're playing with. 
um, I think that is that is how you lay the groundwork. And I think that children who learn that from an early age, that you know, drawing a boundary and having it respected as well as respecting other people's boundaries, I think they are less likely to grow into, into adults that would um, override other people's personal um, limits and boundaries and be abusive in that sense. Practicing consent starts with asking questions, and it means empathy in action, as we talked about in the episode with Sarah Casper. How do we seek for consent with our romantic partners who we've spent a lot of time with, years or even decades? I think it's a mindset. I think that it is um, customizing yourself to never assuming consent for anything. I think it's a lifestyle in a sense. Um, of course, when you live with someone and you've been in a relationship for long, like some things of course sort of fall into their place and become habits and you don't have to inquire as frequently about consent for certain things such as you know whether or not your partner would like a cup of tea. <laughs> you just assume that they want one and you offer it, but of course you respect if they don't want it. Um, However, there are certain areas where consent should always be um, sought and respected, and sex is one of those areas for sure. Relationships develop in stages, and those stages determine the way we seek consent, because there are many ways to do this. Romantic relationships are unlike work relationships, which include clearly defined contracts and tasks, we hope, most of the time. In intimate relationships, we do not sign contracts. Well, unless in some cases, including marriage, but in any case, each partner has no defined role by a contract. And everyone develops and changes over time, including what they like or don't. This means that we need to have ongoing conversations with each other to get to know our intimate levels. If you are not sure if your partner wants to engage in sexual interactions, ask give space and time for them to decide. It's not rocket science. Part of what you were saying before, I mean, the topic of boundaries is so massive. I feel it's a lifelong lesson for me. Sometimes I think I have a boundary that's set straight and then I realize that I have to work on it a little bit. How do you um, practice this notion of setting boundaries? Because, you know, even with children, sometimes they say you have to step out of your comfort zone to discover who you really are, but that implies that you need to break boundaries to learn boundaries. So do you think that that's the case or how can we know what our boundaries are? Oh, wow. That is a great question. How do we know where our boundaries are? Well, um, that is complicated. Uh, for sure. <laughs> and I think it's further complicated by the fact that we're also socially conditioned to be pleasant. Um, we're, also, we're socially conditioned to not state hard boundaries. And if we don't want to engage in some activity with someone, we're sort of taught to let them down easy and perhaps not be entirely honest about our motivations for doing so. Um, very few people would say, no, I absolutely do not want to come to your dinner party. They would make an excuse. <laughs> um, so it's, yeah, it's um, definitely a, a double-edged sword, this whole um, having a need for, for boundaries to be something you can effectively state but also live in a world where 
we need to be um, to some extent liked by those around us or accepted by those around us. So that is a, a balancing act, I would say. And I think that the social conditioning of women goes further in them having to be people pleasers and having to be perceptive to other people's needs and feelings uh, more so than men's social conditioning. So I also think it's like highly gendered and political uh, in that sense. Um, so I understand how much of uh, today's culture actually underlines um, that women should be empowered in drawing boundaries and, and stating what they want and being vocal and powerful in their own autonomy. And as much as I support and understand that, I also think that there are instances where that can be taken to the extreme or where it's simply not fitting. Um, for example, in sexual situations, I would not want that to be the focus. I would not want the focus to be on the person who needs for a boundary, for their boundary to be respected, to have to be, you know, vocal and stating it and for the responsibility to be there. I would want to flip that and for the responsibility uh, to be on the end and with the person that is instigating person that is taking incentive, they're the ones that should be exploring where the boundary lies and respecting it. Um, because if we don't keep that responsibility where it belongs with the person that is incentivizing or, or um, introducing an activity, then I think there's a, a slippery, slippery slope into victim blaming where we land in a situation asking questions like, well, why did you not just say no? Why did you not just, et cetera? Um, when of course, it's always the perpetrator that needs to be entirely clear uh, on what they're doing. And, um, and of course the word perpetrator is only applicable if they cross a boundary willingly. Um, there are, of course, instances where boundaries are crossed and it's not um, purposeful. And I think that happens to all of us, not necessarily in sexual situations, but I don't think we can go through life without violating consent or boundaries at some point. It's part of the human journey. Uh, and it means that we need to be always mindful and never arrogant uh, and never think that we know once and for all where, where all boundaries lie, because that would never be true. Um, we need to stay humble and in tune with ourselves and those around us. Well, I mean, sorry, to, I'm just pressing on this one, but you're, you're placing intent above result. Is that great? So say if somebody actually, you know, violates someone, raped someone, and they didn't mean to, because maybe they thought they're, maybe they're young, maybe like in your instance as well, in your situation, you know, this person, didn't mean to, but it happened. So what does that mean? So does that mean that they're not as responsible as if, you know- No, they... absolutely not. Um, and I'm glad to get the opportunity to, to clear that up and to underline that. I think that, yes, there are um, differences in intent for sure. Uh, and there are those who are very calculated in the abuse that they uh, exercise. But then there are those who simply override a boundary because they were careless and sloppy or too assumptuous about um, the situation. And I think that 
although that paints a very different portrait of the perpetrators, um, the result for the victim is the same. Um, so for a victim to be, um, to have their autonomy robbed from them uh, and their, their control, um, their self-determination taken from them, that is always a trauma and that is always um, painful and something that people have the right to heal from, uh, regardless of how it came about. Assumptions can go so fast, so fast you might not realize it immediately. So some of us need to challenge and change their own thinking. It is easy to do that when we practice consent. So how can you easily overcome your own assumptions, interpretations or speculations? I think that asking questions is, is always better to ask more than, than too little, too much than too little, obviously. Um, and I think that when we stop asking questions is when we're risking uh, making mistakes um, and to impact someone in a negative way. And I, I hear it around me all the time now in the post Me Too era, I hear people sort of cynically saying, so what are we supposed to do now? Should we ask like at every step and turn, do we need to have a contract written and signed and stamped before we uh, get physical with one another? And, um, and to, to those people, I sort of want to say yes. And what's wrong with that? <laughs> like it, it can actually be such a giving practice. It can be so, um, revealing of, of longings and wants and ideas that you hadn't fathomed before. It can really broaden your horizon and it can also teach you valuable things about yourself if you have to put things into words. Uh, and if you're asked about your stance on various things, even the most mundane things. So I, I don't see it as a loss. I see it as such an opportunity to, to get to know each other better. And it can be oh so sexy as well. <laughs> Wonderfully um, said, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I, I can't help but feel that inevitably when we're discussing this, we're already kind of preaching to the choir in a way. So listeners that are going to a podcast that's called Conversation on Consent are already interested in this. But there is obviously a, a mass population in many, many different cultures that are not at all thinking about this topic. How do you feel that this is gonna play out when we are in cities that are melting pots and we have multiple cultures, multiple backgrounds, um, and people are coming from you know someone like you that sounds quite advanced in the consent realm and someone that perhaps has never heard of the word consent and it's complete news, how can we, how can we try to take steps to merge the two and to walk together towards a more cohesive, inclusive society? Well, again, with communicating and again, with talking about things um, and not shying away from them because they're taboo or because they're tricky and layered and saturated in different cultures. But I will tell you this, I feel confident stating that there's not a culture on earth where consent is not central um, to human interaction, because that is how we are. That is how we are as people that we um, would never function as a, as a herd, because that's what we are in the end, if we did not respect um, consent. And how that looks, yes, can be different from one place to another, but the most basic um, listening when someone's talking, um, 
inviting people to partake in activities and respecting when they choose to not to. I guarantee there's no culture on earth where those are not integral parts of everyday communication. So I think that we have the basic groundwork. Uh, then we just need to figure out ways to um, universalize, if you will, the concepts so that we use the same language so that we know that we're talking about the same things. Oftentimes I feel that words are the greatest obstacles um, because they can be so riddled with, with meaning to you that they don't have in my mind, for example. So um, I think we have all the groundwork. It's a matter of, of tools and methodology. And of course, a will, of course, an attitude, a longing for everyone to have the best possible existence in this brief time that we get on Earth. Thordis touches on something incredibly fundamental for communication, meaning. Our words, while we share them, carry different meanings for different people. Some words are loaded with more than one association. Just take the word love, for instance. Conversations need to include feedback. It is not just enough to state something, but to make sure we each get what we actually mean so we know we're on the same page, you know? Check in to know what someone means. Try to understand rather than to be understood and make sure you got it right. Communication is not just about talking and listening, but a process of unpacking what we want to communicate. And Thordis, how would you explain to someone, so you've obviously had your boundaries violated as we established before. For someone that doesn't understand what that does to a survivor or a victim, how would you explain that feeling? Because someone might just go like, oh, well, they'll get over it, right? How would you explain the actual feelings and process that you went through to get yourself back on your feet or feeling wholesome? Right. Um, well, I think essentially what you're asking is how do you heal from someone overriding your consent in a, a very impactful way? And um, for sure, that was... That was what happened to me. And because I was so young, I was 16, it's hard for me to sort of um, have a before and after. I don't really remember what I was like. I, I have a hard time establishing what it did to my personality, so to speak. But um, it certainly motivated me to um, become somewhat of a warrior for, for others that would have this potentially happen to them, because as we know, it's all too common and there's not a country on the face of the earth where sexual violence does not take place. Um, and I recently actually had a conversation about uh, healing and restoration and reconciliation after an act of violence such as this. And um, it is my message um, that healing from such an act is a very highly personal journey that no one can dictate but the person themselves, the survivor of the situation. And I think that we are very controlling when it comes to other people's healing. I think that um, concepts like unforgivable, which is something we throw around oftentimes when we're appalled or outraged uh, over some atrocity, I think that 
is actually um, a testament to a lack of understanding or arrogance even um, when it comes to people's right to heal in a way that feels safe and good for them. And to give you an example, there's this fantastic uh, initiative called the Forgiveness Project, which was founded by a journalist called Marina Cantacuzino. And she has for probably two decades now collected stories from all over the world where people have um, healed from most unspeakable things, um, having their children murdered, genocide, um, horrific acts of, of violence and terrorism. And, um, and having read those accounts, uh, I was humbled by the size of their spirit and by their autonomy and, and right to choose the way forward for them in a way that would enable them to carry on living. And as a result, it would be unfathomable to me to, to set, set, set myself in a judgment seat and say, oh, no, 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 that was unforgivable. You're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to take control of your feelings and your healing. Um, for me, the very least we can do for people who've been traumatized in one way or another is to empower them to heal in whatever way feels right for them. So as a result, I don't have a cookie cutter solution. For me, it took a lot of processing. It took me being angry. It took me being uh, vengeful for years. It took me being bitter. Um, I developed all kinds of destructive coping mechanisms. Um, I became a workaholic and a uh, complete hopeless overachiever. Everything to just distract myself from this inner turmoil that I couldn't deal with or refused to deal with. So um, yeah, it, it took me going through all of those stages of, of anger and bitterness and vengefulness to find a place where I could confront the, the man who had raped me at the age of 16 and place the blame with him, which started a, a very long journey of analysis that ultimately ended in, in a form of reconciliation and healing. It makes so much sense um, when you say that healing and if I got you right, also forgiving is mainly something that one person personally can go through and can also like decide, for example, do I need the acknowledgement of the perpetrator? Do I need a sorry of the perpetrator? Do I need justice in court? Those are all like for me in my perspective, additional external um, attributes, if uh, one might say, that can probably provide you with uh, healing. Um, what would you say to people um, who may still be in the transitional phase of going through some difficult emotions and coping strategies, maybe also thinking, do I actually confront someone? I'm afraid of it. I'm afraid of confronting someone. Um, what would you say to, to people? Um, how, how important is it to get either acknowledgement from, from friends, sharing with friends, or getting the chance to have your case in, in court? Well, I do think that acknowledgement of hurt is very important to a person that's healing from the hurt. Um, I often get asked how important was my perpetrator's regret 
and my healing. And personally, it, it helped me. It certainly did. Um, and it, it did free me, so to speak, from some of the self-blame that I'd wrongfully shouldered. Um, but at the same time, I'm also very aware of the fact that many, many people will never be in a situation to, to be on the receiving end of their perpetrator's regret because their perpetrator may be in denial, um, they may not regret what they did, or they may be deceased, for example. So um, for those people, uh, obviously, they can still achieve healing and they can still find inner peace. It's not dependent on anything from the perpetrator, but we can all be that person that acknowledges a survivor's hurt. Every last one of us can be the person that says, you did not deserve that. You did nothing um, to deserve that. And the blame is not yours. And you have a right to heal from what happened to you. And I see you, I see your pain. That, that is not something that is uniquely bestowed upon perpetrators. We can all be the person that does that for a survivor and to be prepared for society to to sort of embrace them in that way. And I see, fortunately, uh, great strides in that area now after, after Me Too, that we've become better at this. I feel that we as a society have become much better at being the person that acknowledges a survivor's hurt. Uh, after Me Too, I find it much more common to see people actually respond to um, a survivor opening up about their, their hurt with affirmations, with things like, you did not deserve that. I'm so sorry that happened to you. I believe you, which I think are some of the most healing words a person can hear. So we're on a very steep learning curve, I think, as a, as a globe when it comes to these matters. One of the things I found um, quite interesting about your, your TED talk with your um, perpetrator was the fact that it put a face to perpetrators because we always have all these statistics about X amount of people being raped every year, but we don't really talk about statistics in terms of how many people are perpetrating. And also we have a tendency to think of perpetrators as a Hollywood film in a back alley um, that looks like a monster that's been transformed when actually these are people that have moms, sisters, uh, kids, and oftentimes they could be someone you'd go to a bar and have a drink with. So could you tell me a little bit about what you've learned in terms of what a perpetrator actually looks like? Yeah, sure. No, you're absolutely right. And I was very guilty of having those misconceptions myself. And it certainly slowed down my own healing. Um, when I was raped by my then boyfriend. He did not fit any sort of monster stereotype at all. He was very much the opposite, uh, eloquent, uh, from a stable background, um, well-spoken honor student. And, um, and yet he was capable of taking advantage of me in the worst, worst imaginable way for two hours it ended up being. So, um, so, the fact that I had these wrongful ideas about what a perpetrator was meant that it took me a long time to piece together that what had happened to me had indeed been sexual assault. And once I, I had that um, conclusion, then it was too late in the sense that 
my perpetrator had then uh, left the country. He had completed an exchange program because he was in Iceland, my, my homeland, uh, on exchange. So valuable time was lost while I was sort of waiting in my own misconceptions, um, which then meant that it took me another nine years to sort of process and gather the courage to try and find this man again and have this conversation that I was so, so desperate to have where I would rid myself of the blame that I'd carried for almost a decade and leave it with him. Blame. There's a lot of blame that is being passed onto the victim of sexual assault by society, but also by the victim itself. Rape myths, such as the monster myth, make it so hard for society as well as victim to place the onus on the perpetrator of sexual assault. Seeing a face of a regular man who committed rape is revolutionary because it helps us understand that the statistics are real, that rape is widespread and that there are no monsters, just average so-called good guys. And since then I have seen uh, on a much larger scale, how these misconceptions um, play into the problem and actually further it. Because um, if we have an idea of who it is that, that can perpetrate sexual violence and, and said person is a monster, is a you know, knife-wielding lunatic lurking in an alley, then we are less likely to actually believe those who have been abused by a role model, by a famous director, by a professional athlete, by someone that we admire and hold up. Um, so it furthers this culture of silence and it, it sort of locks um, survivors into their shame and silence. Uh, so I think that one of the best things that could possibly happen in this realm um, would be for us to demolish this monster myth. It would help in so many ways. It would also, um, I think, enable perpetrators to, um, it would remove this tool that they now currently have where they can sort of excuse their actions because come on, I'm not a monster. And very few people, I guarantee you, very few people look in the mirror in the morning and think that they're a monster. Uh, so it sort of creates this dichotomy, like us and them. Um, and a di dichotomy of that nature is preventing us from actually seeing the, the problem in our own backyard. Uh, so yeah, those are some of the advantages that, that uprooting the monster myth would bring about. For me, it's, it's really interesting to hear how, you know, this monster figure, deconstructing the monster figure would be very constructive, actually, because I do think that sometimes societally we assume that these kinds of incidences happen in certain socioeconomic brackets or that they happen in particular cultures. And sometimes we forget that, you know, as you mentioned, uh, a very highly educated person or honor student, you know, in my case, my rapist was an Ivy League student from Cambridge. And so I think that breaking down these barriers is really interesting. And it also almost like gives validity because I sometimes feel like it's not valid for me to say that rape happened if this person is highly educated a business person successful in every other way how can this possibly be and it does create this clash how did you you know how were you able to come to the conclusion that this had been assault 
especially when in this instance you had a personal attachment and I'm assuming love and care for your once boyfriend, how were you able to understand that actually what happened was rape? Well, I think that to reach just such an understanding, you have to be able to see humanity as multifaceted, that we are capable of both good and bad things, um, that there is no black and white, there is no villain and victim um, in our lives in every aspect all the time. Uh, and that sort of narrow-minded thinking is what creates this sensationalism, which robs us of all nuance and will never enable us to get to the root of anything that has to do with human emotions and human communication and interaction. Um, so for me, um, some of the, the components that I needed in order to, to make sense of, of my experience was that acknowledgement. Uh, and it was also coming to terms with um, a whole lot of darkness, a whole lot of um, feelings that were generated by this experience of mine um, that I had to put under the microscope and, and understand that never belonged to me. Um, and I think one of the most empowering things that can take place in someone's life once they've been violated is is understanding how the shame that it generates was never yours to carry. Um, so some of those things were definitely helpful for me to sort of identify um, what had happened to me and to, to process it and rid myself of that burden. Um, I don't think there's a cookie cutter solution. I think that it's a very highly personal journey how people come to terms with process and place responsibility. Um, at the feet of their abusers. But we can all help in that regard. Conversations like this one help so much. Just keeping a dialogue open, um, normalizing, if you will, not normalizing abuse, but normalizing the fact that it happens all too often that so many of us carry that, um, carry that burden and that we're not alone and that um, we deserve the help, we deserve the light as opposed to the darkness. And there are so many support services available to people that are struggling. And I would want them to know that. And moving forward, what kinds of societal changes would you like to see happen in the next few years that you think would be great steps that we could be taking to, to kind of support consent and make sure that we are practicing consent? Well, I'm happy to hear that there's a petition in Germany, for example, for there to be a consent-based legislation there when it comes to um, sexual autonomy. It was not the case in Iceland only three years ago. It's just three years since we changed our legislation. Up until then, um, it was not rape to um, have sexual relations with someone who did not consent if you did not use um, force or threats. So if someone just froze, which is a very common response, um, the fight, freeze, or flight response, then, um, then that person was not legally protected, um, so to speak. And that's, of course, atrocious and not reflective of a consent culture. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that steps are being taken around the world to better reflect what should be a natural order of things. Um, 
And just thinking about it, we don't walk around telling people, I don't want you to take my computer or I don't want you to steal my car. Like it's just a given, right? I mean, we feel that it's, it's natural that you don't want things taken from you or your consent assumed when it comes to material things. But suddenly when it comes to our bodies, it's murkier. And I think that is um, outlandish. I think that if anything, our bodies are our most valuable possession. Uh, so I think it's ridiculous that um, you can only violate a body if you use force or threats when it's to me very obvious that violating the body means not respecting consent or not seeking consent. Um, so in that sense, it's simple really. Um, and we tend to, to uh, make these things um, unnecessarily complex and convoluted, I often think, uh, when at the end of the day, you either seek consent or you don't. And if you haven't sought consent, then you're not in the right. Um, and it's simple, in a sense, for me. Outlandish is a great word to describe the fact that we don't recognize the bodily integrity of a person as much as we do with a computer or a car. It should not be this way. Conversations and consent have the power to start a natural process of discovering each other. These conversations are to be held in the many different ways that are possible. We gain intimacy, we gain trust. And for those who do not want to listen, we need law. As Thordis says, we need laws that are firmly in place protecting our very most valuable asset, our own body. So thinking about public steps, um, conversations on consent is certainly uh, one movement that tries to make consent mainstream. Um, the best I know, by the way. Um, <laughs> what do you think about the only yes means yes movement? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, mm. that's a hot potato. Um, well, I, I am very much um, torn. I, I, I understand that no means no, for example, comes from a good place and is well intended, but I think that it can also cause harm. Um, Because for a survivor that wasn't in a position to say no, no means no is like the prick with a needle. It's a reminder that you did not say no. And essentially, no is just, you know, a very um, small part of, of what consent is and means. Um, a lot of consent is not spoken. Uh, and for it to become such a fixated verbal thing, I think is, is harmful and dangerous. Again, if we look to the fact that so many people freeze when they are intimidated in an intimate situation, um, and they literally lose the capacity to utter words um, and to control their bodies, because that is what the freeze response does. Then I think we are furthering their harm by, by using a slogan that implies that everyone is verbal and everyone is in a situation to say no when that is not the case, far from it. Um, yes means yes has that same problem at the core of it. 
that um, that everyone is in a position to, to be verbal, to state boundaries, um, and it sort of places again that responsibility with the survivor. When for me, it should be the other way around. We should always be focusing on the person who's instigating the, the activity to be 100% sure that there's consent along the way in every step of that journey. And um, so, yeah, I, I have problems with, with these methodologies. I think that if we should be saying any slogan and I'm wary of using slogans because they're redactive. But if we were to use any slogan, it would be more along the lines of get wholehearted consent, because that puts the responsibility with the person that's instigating, as opposed to the person that should be drawing a boundary. Um, because I don't think that that's the way to go about things. I should not be forced to draw a boundary. I should have my boundaries respected by the person that inquires about them. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I could not agree <laughs> more. Like, I think that's really a wonderful way to wrap things up. And um, third is, I don't know if before we do say goodbye, there's a final message that you'd like to leave us with. Something maybe that you want to share from your journey or just maybe some tips for us or anything that you want to add that we haven't covered. Well, um, obviously, I'm gushing about the fact that you're doing this. I think that's amazing. Thank you so much on behalf of everyone that's working in violence prevention. Initiatives like this are invaluable. Um, and as you said, the, the people listening are probably people who have a reason to listen more closely because they may themselves be healing from something of this nature where their consent was not respected. And if that is you, and if you're listening, and if you recognize yourself from that, I just want you to know that you're absolutely not alone. And um, there's so many people out there willing and ready to help you. There are resources. You do not have to shoulder, shoulder this in silence. Um, and life gets better, I promise it does. So yeah, that's, that's me opening opening up my embrace to all of those who may still feel that they're stumbling around in the darkness. I've, I've certainly been there, but, um, but I have so much reason to be hopeful. I've seen so many incredible strides taken in the past few years. I'm continually floored by the world's willingness to learn. Sometimes it's frustratingly slow. And yes, of course, there are setbacks along the way, but I think we're moving in the right direction. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Thordis. It's been wonderful speaking to you. And Nico, I don't know if there's anything else that you wanted to mention. Just thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you very much for your work and for giving hope and a lot of insights. Thank you, Thordis. Thank you. And to all of our listeners, please do visit our website if you haven't signed our petition yet to include the definition of consent in the law, please do so. And you can follow us as well on social media at Consent Revolution. And we look forward to chatting to you next time.